and we're live. There's literally no unawkward way to start a live broadcast where you're clicking the live button yourself. But this is Machine Meets World from Infinia ML. I am James Kotecki, your host. We're talking artificial intelligence today with my guest, the CEO and founder of Technovation, Tara Chiklovsky. Tara, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, James. This will be fun. <laughs> I hope I hope it's as, I hope you have as much fun as I'm about to have. Um, so the first question, the question I love to ask people to kind of get into things is Technovation actually is one of those great names that like it could literally be a name for anything in the tech space, and it's it's kind of this all-purpose name. How do you define Technovation? How do you explain it, especially to somebody who's who's not even in the the tech space? Um, so the short answer is yes. Uh, we actually I started the nonprofit, and we were called Iridescent before. And a friend of mine, uh, she went to Startup Weekend and uh, she was very, very impressed by um, the experience of Startup Weekend and felt that young girls should have that experience. And uh, so she created this sort of competition that was an evolution of the Startup Weekend uh, for high school girls. And we were looking for a name and she was like, it has to be grounded in technology because technology changes the world and it also gives an individual so much power. And innovation is is the a spirit of human humanity, right? Like you're always looking for something new, something better. Um, and so we blended the two names together, and that was Technovation. Um, yes. And then uh, over time, um, that program has become very, very exciting and and empowering. And uh, the competition model, of course, is is core to what drives, um, motivates people to finish. Um, and so we changed the name from Iridescent to Technovation. And so Startup Weekend, for people who aren't familiar, the model that you're basing this on, or really really what you're doing now is a kind of a, a competition. You're saying it's focused on young girls to create technology businesses, apps over the course of a set period of time with some kind of mentoring framework around that. Is that right? That's that's right. So, so actually, the girls part is one part of our program, but um, our main pillar is reaching families, so parents. Um, and the idea is that yeah, like Kofi Annan says, you're never too old to learn and you're never too young to lead. Um, so that's sort of the spirit of the organization. And parental co-engagement, co-learning, lifelong learning is the bedrock of the program. And so the competition framework is is one that time and time again, I mean, from the times of the Olympics, right? Like when they started, uh, it's usually motivating. Um, and so that's what we use as the framework. So you find a problem in your community, you learn um, how to use like a very, very powerful technology to tackle that problem. Um, 10 years ago, it was mobile. Now it's AI. Um, and so that's that's how, so, sort of how we see our role. Maybe in the next 10 years, it'll be synthetic biology um, that you're using to solve a problem in your community. So those are sort of key elements of what makes this is this effective. And so effectively, what your organization is doing, looked at from one lens, and kind of the lens that we see our show in is, is all about AI. And so that's what we really want to talk about here. Um, effectively, what you're doing is you're teaching AI to kids, right? Like kids come into the program. I assume that many of them have, have never done anything related to AI before, right? And so you're giving them, you're still working with a blank slate. Totally. And not just kids, but also, like I said, the parents, so the adults, most adults don't know how machine learning works, how the face recognition on the phone works, what's behind all of this. And that's the idea that um, um, kind of unpacking this black box uh, of, of AI technologies, because it's everywhere. 
And when you don't know something, it can be very scary. Um, you you don't know what the implications are, and and so you tend to sort of shut it down even more, and you're resistance to any kind of um, any kind of reskilling, upskilling, which will have to happen no matter what, right? Because it is changing our world in so many different ways. So it's not just about the children, but it's also about the adults who need to uh, be more open to understanding how these technologies work. The other element to that is sort of privacy and all of that. Like even when you don't know what these tools are doing and how you're interacting with them, it's just general consumer best practice that you understand a little bit about how these technologies are working. So you're looking at the fine print or or not, right? Like at least you have some sense of what what, what is this? Who is using this data and how? And how can I protect myself? How can I be an informed user? Like you look at the nutrition labels of what you eat, but you're not using, you're not looking at the tech and the apps that you're using with that same frame of mind. So you're taking an audience that has very little understanding of AI, you're immersing them into this world, they're coming out of it with products, apps, businesses, I guess, the families are creating? Yeah, so the idea is that uh, they come up with a unique um, um, prototype of, a, a, of an idea that can be used to uh, tackle a problem that's very specific to their community. So. For instance, there was one family um, in Bolivia that uh, was looking at an invasive weed in their largest lake, which is the Lake, lake Titicaca. And they trained the model on, on recognizing that particular invasive weed. Now, a lot of the plant data sets um, that are in use are have uh, data that's coming from North America and Western Europe. Um, and a lot of the biodiversity in the world is beyond just these regions, um, but the data sets are not representative of that. And that's true of a lot, right? Like all of the facial recognition issues are, are also around that. So a big part of this is creating data sets that are more, uh, that are more diverse, richer, um, more um, um, applicable to the local, local communities around the world. Um, and then another example was a family in Kuwait actually created a recognition system that would look at birds um, because a lot of the bird population is dying out. Um, and you would not normally think about, uh, like a, a technologist in Silicon Valley would not normally think about creating these types of prototypes. And so it's less about creating a world-changing solution and more about creating a highly effective solution for a local population. And I think, hmm. Um, that in our mind is sort of AI at the grassroots level, um, which is giving a voice to everyone rather than from a top-down type of solution where you're like, okay, we're going to deploy this face recognition system or whatever it is for everybody. Um, and then later on realize, okay, well, it's not working. <laughs> because yeah. So this is a bottom-up approach where you're empowering people to create more sort of um, like rich data sets, basically. Um, and come up with their ideas of, of um, potential AI-based solutions that are tackling very, very unique problems. I'd like to speak a little bit more about the international dimensions here because your program is an international one. I think people should know that. And do you, do you have additional thoughts on, you know, we talk a lot about AI bias as far as uh, bias, you know, against certain genders or sexual orientations or racism and, and you know, built into AI. But still, those stories are often seen through the lens of a data set, as you're saying, that comes from North America or Europe largely, right? And so how big of a problem is AI bias on kind of the, uh, the continental level, I suppose you could say? And uh, 
is it a problem that we're really doing a good job as a, as, as a society or as, as tech companies of, of tackling? Because it seems like you could have a situation where certain parts of the world skyrocket ahead because they've got all the data and the AI talent and the rest of the world gets increasingly left behind. Um, I mean, I think I, I don't want to dip too much into that because I also see the world through my particular lens, which is that of education. And I think, yes, there are many things wrong. Um, but education is a is a huge, powerful lever uh, that counters that. And that's one of the reasons why I started the nonprofit in the first place. Um, so I think, yes, all of that exists. Yes, that is a problem. But instead of trying to like, what is a counter or what is a solution to that? And I think the solution to that is a slow solution, but one that we have to undertake, which is educating the public. Um, and and I think over time, you see people are getting kinder. They are get, we have fewer wars. We have few, I mean, we are just improving as a society in general. And that's because of education. Um, and so I think it's a similar kind of upward trend. The issue is that the technologies are developing way faster than people are getting educated. But um, hopefully, yeah, that we're trying to trying to address that. So I think the, the, the core of approach here is that empower people and especially women, especially mothers, because um, they have such a huge role in, in shaping their children's mindset and behaviors and having them be open to learning how these technologies work. So only once you understand, well, if I clicked on this, now it's going to recommend more like this to me. This is why I'm getting all of this crap in my feed. And and it, it changes my behavior online. Um, I'm just going to be more and more aware of my actions, right? Um, and so we have so much around step counting and calorie counting, but not so much around our use on the internet um, and our, 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 our online footprint as such, For at least for the older generations. And that's what we're trying to tackle, but not from a negative point of view where this is why you should be afraid of all the things and they're taking your data and this is the big brother watching. Not No, not from that point of view, but from a point of view of agency where now you know how this works. You try to create something that's better, right? Um, that meets mm -hmm. your needs. And that's going to fuel you to keep learning rather than from a point of view of fear or um, look how bad the system is, you know? It's so interesting what you're doing because when we talk about how we're going to build the future of AI kind of on a macro societal level, we talk about needing to bring as many people into the conversation as possible. It can't just be the engineers, the data scientists, the technologists who are making these decisions, which are often not even technical decisions, but core ethical decisions, core issues that go with the issues of free speech and all these other things that we hold as kind of human values. What, what have you learned about bringing people into that conversation? It, is it because to say, oh, we have to educate everybody about AI so they'll better understand it, it seems kind of daunting, right? Because AI is, as you said, one of those issues that's evolving so rapidly, it's very difficult for people to get a handle on. And there's an inherent fear when they come to it. So what lessons can you kind of teach other people who want to get more folks involved in this conversation about how to expand that circle of who's talking about AI? Yeah, and I think, uh, we, again, we're not the experts on this, but we are, we are making some steps. We're not sort of saying, like, this is too big for us to tackle. We're just going to bury our heads in the sand. But so last year, we worked with a law firm, Hogan Lovells, to create sort of a AI inventor's um, ethical guidebook for students and for children and families, like uh, just giving them some guidelines on, well, think about this, think about this, think about the edge cases, the corner cases. Um, and that was one step in the direction. This year, um, we are working with this um, amazing professor. Her name is Batya Friedman. She 
wrote the first paper um, in computer science around machine learning bias, bias in mach machines. I think she wrote it in like the in the early 80s or 90s, actually. Um, and this was before bias became a real term, like it's being used so mm -hmm. commonly now. Um, and she has, um, she just published a book called Value Sensitive Design. Um, and, and, and this is a term that she, that I'd never heard of it before. It's called moral imagination, uh, inventing with a moral imagination, right? Like we are always thinking about sort of creativity and technical imagination, technical creativity, but never from a point of view of moral. And I, uh, and I think it's becoming more and more important that you cannot create products that have such massive scale and impact without thinking about the values of your users. Um, so they actually have a whole series of methods that they use or is recommend for inventors to, to, to think about. And it's like the direct stakeholders, I mean, just a whole series of steps and it can be done. It's just that people don't like to, they just, it, human instinct is like, I have an idea, I wanna go build it right away and deploy it and get my quick positive feedback. But you just have to sort of have some discipline here um, because you realize that you have a very sharp knife. Um, you're not just going to wield it around anyway. <laughs> you got to take the necessary courses to learn how to use it. Um, so, and perhaps one of the issues is that the people who are designing this technology today, that are in the companies that are creating it, never had any kind of training in this because, of course, it wasn't a thing when they were kids. So they never had a chance to kind of build up that internal ethical frame because their parents didn't teach them about it. It didn't exist when they were kids because the technology is moving so quickly. What have you seen about how quickly kids? can kind of parse and figure out the ethical and moral dimensions of this? When you bring this up with kids, what do they say? How do they act? I mean, look, fairness is um, inbuilt in us, right? Like um, even a three-year-old, well, if you give one three-year-old something and another three-year-old something else, like that's not fair. I know that right? well, I know that well, yeah. Right, so it doesn't take time at all for kids to understand when something is not fair. Um, and, and so I, I don't know if you know about that study where um, um, I think Franz de Waal uh, did this experiment with capuchin monkeys. Have you heard about that one? It's, it's, uh, absolutely, no, no. it's absolutely awesome. You should, you should look at the video. There are two capuchin monkeys in two different cages and they're both getting um, cucumbers. Uh, and then in return, they have to give a stone back to the researcher. And then they can see what the other capuchin monkey is getting. Um, and then suddenly the researcher gives one monkey a grape, and then she gives the other capuchin monkey the cucumber. Um, so the one who gets the cucumber throws the cucumber back <laughs> at the researcher, <laughs> because, and which is such as just because the other one got a grape. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that concept of fairness is just is just inbuilt in us. Right. So it doesn't take time at all for kids to understand that um, you need to take it's just that we've not been taught this. And I think that's a key part of what um, we are trying to build out in our AI curriculum is um, it's not just enough to understand the core technical elements of it. But if you're creating a prototype or a product that's going to be deployed into the world, you need to understand sort of the behavioral barriers to adopting it. You have to understand all of the elements of this, create sort of the, um, understand the moral framework of who's going to be using it, what are the impacts on the, the people who are going to use it, who are going to be indirectly affected by it. Um, then also understand sort of your own own journey as an entrepreneur, because just because you deployed the product doesn't mean your journey ends there, right? Um, you're going to have all sorts of elements. So thinking through the whole element, and then finally, 
um, recognizing that you're probably creating a solution for a complex system and understanding what are the rules of that system, what are the feedback loops of that system. You don't learn this in school. Um, and so what, what happens is that as an engineer, you develop a product, deploy it, then realize, oh my gosh, that thing broke and that hurt the whole community. Yeah. And you get this negative feedback loop. Um, now you're just doing whack-a-mole, right? Um, right? And so so I think these are critical skills and the World Economic Forum has sort of outlined like what are the three main skills students need to be learning now as cognitive abilities, it's systems thinking and complex problem solving. None of these three are taught in school. Um, I think social emotional learning is being taught more and more in school, which is awesome. Um, but I think it needs to be um, blended in into sort of the, the hard um, skills that, that students are learning because it shouldn't be just like, okay, that's what I do in my SEL class. It needs to be blended in into how do I apply it when I'm actually solving a complex problem using technology. And with AI and machine learning specifically, the problems are even compounded, right? Because you could have data drift over time. You've mentioned that you're deploying these things in the complex situations. Well, the real world data that's coming in is not always gonna match the data that you trained on. In fact, it definitely won't. And so over time, you need to be maintaining these systems, upgrading them, tweaking them, and at very least keeping an eye on them to make sure that they're not doing something that you didn't intend for them to do. All of which, as you mentioned, completely different than how you think about a typical academic environment where you take a test and then you can forget about it because you can move on to the next thing. Yes, and I think um, that's that piece of like um, metaco uh, metacognition, right? Like understanding yourself, like when do you get bored? Um, and when, um, like, okay, you've, done, you've, you've created your product and now you move on, you want to move on to something, but guess what? It's live in the world, right? Now all these people are using it, it's broken or it's not working properly um, and you have a moral responsibility to go because it's affecting somebody's life, right? Um, and uh, it's it just, so I think Bhatia Friedman make, gives a very interesting example of um, the person, like think about somebody who created a cell phone. You first think that the main person that the, the, uh, who's being affected is of course the cell phone owner. But she's like, think about the situation when you're on a crowded bus or a train or an airplane and somebody's having a loud phone conversation. Guess what? You're an indirect stakeholder because you are being affected by it too. Um, so think about what kinds of um, uh, features you would want in your product that affect those people because your, your products are never going to be in an isolated bubble. And, and I think these are the kinds of things that uh, we want to make sure that we are giving enough tools and, and steps for people to be able to practice thinking along those lines, where it's not just you, um, you're living in a, in a highly connected web of humans, right? And they're all affecting each yeah. other. Which, of course, the pandemic has also shown us in other ways that everybody is connected. Um, is it different, by the way, just as an aside, is it is it different during the pandemic, your curriculum? Does it take on a different uh, flavor or does it look does it look different in light of the major changes that are kind of roiling our world right now? I mean, interestingly, we are we are basically an online curriculum platform. Um, so our lives haven't changed. But of course, the participants who are taking part in our program, um, they have not been able to physically meet with mentors. They've not been able to physically meet with each other. And so motivation drops, uh, which is true across the board. Um, and um, for many, we, they don't have access to internet or technology. So their ability to even access the curriculum has dropped. So I think we saw like 15% decrease in um, 
ability for students to finish the full program, but we saw almost like a 50% increase in traffic to our resources from different places. Um, um, children stuck at home trying to doing something meaningful. Um, and we created a video series just for that because I think the um, pandemic makes you feel hopeless. Uh, there's so much sort of suffering, um, but you don't need to. And I think um, there's one very, very interesting um, book by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu written together that says the best sort of antidote for suffering is to think about who else is suffering. It moves, it, it, the moment you start thinking about somebody else, um, guess what? You stop thinking about your own problems and that immediately makes you feel better. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the very first yeah. step. The second step is if you actually start to create something that helps someone, um, now you're spending even more time thinking about somebody else and less time thinking about your own problems. Um, and, and so that is the key to getting out of this while building powerful skills is to try to figure out how can you help your community. And um, we're seeing so many young people stand up and, and create apps that help people in the pandemic, help people connect with one another. And then I think we've also seen a lot of um, students create apps that tackle um, systemic racism, police brutality. Uh, and this has not been just recent, it has been over the years, which is the sad part. Does the, uh, does the global diversity, does the gender diversity, the family, different family perspectives, can you give me some additional insight onto how that plays into uh, people's ability to come up with these different solutions? You mentioned that before, it's kind of a grassroots idea of people building things that are needed for their communities. We're also at a time right now, especially in the United States, but all around the world, where we're, we're having an increased focus on racial issues, diversity issues. Um, and how a lack of voices at the table, uh, especially in tech, frankly, if we're just going to focus on the tech industry, um, may be hurting people's ability to, to come up with the best solutions. Uh, for sure. And I think, I mean, our, we have, I don't know, like maybe six or 7,000 apps that the students have created, families have created over the past decade or so. And hands down, like most of these apps will be apps that you will never see uh, coming out of um, the usual tech sector because they're just so, so unusual and innovative. Um, so, I mean, the list is endless, but I can start um, like in 2010, I think even before Uber was started, um, a team of girls in New York created a Hail New York taxi app, uh, which was like, um, and and this was, this was really like, they did it on their own. They did not know that there was this ride sharing type of a, a thing. Then I think that same year, um, a team of girls created a created a Pinterest type of app, like um, sharing like really beautiful photographs and things. Um, and then the list just keeps going on and on from there. Um, I think many years ago, um, one one app that really sort of moved me was um, an app coming out of Egypt, where um, these middle school girls um, created a special safe forum for. Uh, victims of child marriage, um, that it was a very, very safe space for them to be able to share and um, and 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 support each other. Um, and I was like, wow, right? Like these are, these young women, these are young girls are rebels, right? Because they're going against um, their societal norms, their family norms to, um, to really create this 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 technological sort of solution for problems that they're experiencing you'll never get that up here um, and and then the then from sort of from a racial diversity point of view um, there was one one app created by a team of African-American girls specifically for 
um, athletes who were um, African American girls because they're like they're not enough role models. Um, we only have like we only hear of Serena Williams and Venus Williams, but there's so many we don't have people to look up to um, and to and to and to feel proud. And we are we are never encouraged as much as other girls. And so we created a specific app for that. Um, then there's so many apps um, that um, African American girls have created to help others walk in their shoes. Um, so empathy type of apps, uh, case stories type of apps where you get trained in situations. And these were even before sort of all of this unconscious bias training started to become popular. Um, so of course, like young people are always ahead in terms of what they are thinking. And then when you empower them with um, very, very powerful tools and you say, okay, find a problem that is big for you, for your community, it's amazing what they come up with. It sounds like a lot of these applications are highly practical and kind of grounded mm -hmm. in people's immediate lives and truths. And that's really at odds with, I think, the way that some people perceive of AI as this magical mm -hmm. force that you can kind of sprinkle on something or this sentient robot that's gonna come in and either solve your problems or take over the world. Have you found that uh, children, kids are, and students are perceiving of AI in that magical way? Or is that kind of a relic that maybe adults are holding onto? I some think, I, I think um, it's 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 across the board. Um, I think um, it's more because of our curriculum, right? And that's the 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 value of education. When you learn about something, the sort of curtain falls, right? Um, and it's the same thing here. Like they come in really not knowing what AI is, um, and then they're like, okay, well, it's machine. You're training this data set. You have to build this data set. This is all the problems of the data set and all that. And it's a it's a tractable problem. Um, but but yeah, you're completely right. Like I think it's a function of the curriculum where we ground it into find a problem that's applicable um, to machine learning techniques, and that matching is not always easy. Um, and I think that's our responsibility as educators to make that clearer, so that the the students are able to and the families are able to come up with feasible solutions. One of my favorite ones is a mother and daughter team from Palestine. They created an image recognition system to look at children's drawings to see if they were suffering from depression or bullying um, because you can sort of, and they worked with a psychologist to train that model. Uh, uh, incredibly practical, valuable, um, but again, you could never have thought of it, right? But they experienced that problem. Um, and so then they use this te technology to help them. One of the other uh, perceptions that people have about AI is being scared about their jobs. Mm. Um, do you get people that come into the program with that perception or what do you say to people that are concerned about jobs? Cause it seems like what you're doing is offering a real entrepreneurial, uh, totally different angle on this, which is don't be afraid of the technology, use it, create your own job, create your own company, whatever that might be. But I assume that you run into this fear, this kind of job loss fear quite a bit. For sure. And, and I think, um, that's also a lot of the reasons why some of the parents come, they come because they want their children to get a better education, but they're also curious about this, right? Because they've heard it from their from their company, maybe their 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 factory line is shutting down, um, and they've heard like, okay, there's this thing that we need to learn these new technologies or whatever. But um, whatever is offered online is so scary and dry and boring. Um, and then this one is a is a fun way to spend time with your kids um, and basically bond with them. The kid learns too, but then you may learn something too. And that's our trick, really. Um, and the family co learning. Like so many um, of, of society's core activities are done in multi-generational groups, right? Like you go to church together, you go to a party together, like these are bonding activities, but learning typically is very segregated into different age groups, why, right? 
And so that's one of the key reasons why we want to change that and to build the social human connections and to allow the intergenerational ideas. So one of the things that we are, I, I'm just trying out now is a grandma's coding club. Um, because um, mm -hmm. again, like I think you're never too old to learn. And um, these grandmoms have iPhones and they use face recognition, they use voice recognition, uh, but they don't know how it works. And, but they're curious. And so I think there's no reason why, and they want to connect with their grandchildren, you know? Um, so I think these are just mindset issues that we have to overcome and you can overcome them by being inspired by people like you. So. Um, in the final 60 seconds that we have, I really like what you're doing. So I want to give you a chance to plug it to the fullest extent possible. If people are interested, where should they go to find more? What should they be looking for? How can they sign up or help you? Yeah, I mean, yes, any kind of support. We are always looking for mentors, for people, for volunteers to inspire our participants. Um, go to technovation.org to sign up to be a mentor, a volunteer. We're going to run a pilot, actually, with UNESCO next month and uh, to specifically support girls in many countries um, to combat sort of the pandemic learning loss. Um, girls are in the crosshairs of that. Um, and we would be looking for awesome individuals to come learn with them. Uh, well, great. And mentors can be uh, anybody. people, are they primarily technologists or really no. anybody? No, anybody who wants to learn. Um, because the whole point is that you want to model to a, to a child, I don't know, let's go find out. That's all, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> so uh, that's the key to staying young. Well, I really appreciate this interview. You know, in a in a very crazy time for the world, uh, you've you've delivered a, a very feel good interview here because I feel good about the, what you're doing and, and how you're helping. Um, and so I'm sure that uh, people watching uh, would feel the same. So Tara Chaklovsky, thank you so much for being on Machine Meets World. Thanks, James. Have a great day. Bye. Uh, thank you so much, and thank you for watching and or listening, depending on which one you just did. If you're watching this as a video, you could listen to it as a podcast, and if you're listening to it as a podcast, guess what? You can watch it as a video. This has been Machine Meets World, a production of Infinia ML. Email us, mmw at infiniaml.com. I am James Kotecki, and that is what happens when Machine Meets World. <laughs>